0: Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers, aiming to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes which led to the writing of these books. If you are a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Unforgiven has received um, excellent publicity and reviews the past week or two. In her recent review uh, for Daily Maverick, Rebecca Davis described the book as brave and powerful. And I'm also happy to announce that Unforgiven debuted on the non-fiction top sellers list last week in position 40. Congratulations Liz. Just a short introduction to our two speakers. Um, As many of you probably know, um, Liz McGregor uh, has worked as a journalist in Cape Town, Johannesburg, Seoul, and London, including several years as deputy editor uh, of the op-ed edition of The Guardian. Um, She has also written and edited several books, uh, such as Load Shedding, At Risk, Touch, pause, engage, the Springbok factory and Kabzela. And she currently lives in Cape Town in London and it really is lovely to have her here in Johannesburg. (laughs) So Liz and Trevor's friendship actually go back more than 40 years, I heard tonight. Um, They met in the late 70s or early 80s when they worked together um, at a community newspaper called Grassroots. So apart from his friendship with Liz, um, Trevor is of course the former Minister of Finance and he was also a Minister in the Presidency for the National Planning Commission, that was from 2009 to 2014. And if uh, Google doesn't let me down, you're also Chairman of Old Mutuals Board and Deputy Chairperson of Rothschild South Africa. And may I just say, we do miss having you in government, Mr. Manuel. I'll leave it to the two of them. We look forward to the conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, It's a great privilege to have been invited to to speak at the launch of of, uh, Unforgiven uh, because it's a remarkable book. Um, Not because Rebecca says so, but because it truly is. Because, Liz, you've been able to take a few strong narratives and weave them together in this remarkable book. I want, to, I want to talk about what's perhaps unsaid or too little said about in the book, and that is Robin, your father. Uh, he, was a, he was a truly remarkable person. Um, I think he's best known for that work called Who Owns Whom that uh, uh, I think has had a profound impact certainly on on thinking on competition law in South Africa. Um, In the early period, before 94, it was clear that competition policy was uh, seen as a major threat uh, to those who held corporate power in South Africa because the concentrations were so massive. Um, And there was Robin. Uh, I didn't see him in... Shea Guevara, beret, uh, Toying. but he had a profound impact. In fact, I shared uh, uh, earlier when we were chatting a picture of Tito Mueni, the young Tito Mueni holding a copy of Who Owns Whom, talking about the book. This is before 1994. I'm saying Robin's influence was profound. And I'd like you to talk about that relationship between you and and your dad.
2: Um, Okay. well, um, I think first of all, I was a bit of a shock to my father because um, my mother was um, a Catholic, which my father was, he was not religious at all. And he suddenly found that he had five children in six years. (laughs) (laughs) And he had to support all these hauling brats. So I think that sort of, you know, traumatized him for life. Um, but my father, we moved a lot, as it, he used to, he was quite a restless man. And we sort of moved um, very, very frequently. We, we lived in 30 different houses, my mother would say, with um, some exasperation. But that was how the book came about. You know, he worked in several different industries, um, in sugar, in beer, in paper packaging conversion. And and, in animal feed and in chickens, and every every job he had, he realised there was a monster behind gobbling up the whatever firm he'd been working for. And I think it just sort of slowly dawned on him that this was something that he needed to investigate. So he gave up his uh, well, he went part time on his job, even though he still had children at school. He just um, my two younger brothers were just put in a flat nearby and with a freezer full of uh, pizzas. I think he got sick of parenting now. And um, they went to live in the countryside, my mum and dad, and uh, he then devoted himself to this. And it was a very sort of dogged pursuit. He went to all these share registers all over the country and just sat in reception rooms until they would see him. And then he bought a share in every single company and then added them all up and came to this quite startling revelation that 80% of the country was owned by um, five. Eighty di- percent of the stock exchange was owned by five companies, and then he became a celebrity. And then, yeah, you know, Trevor knows more about his impact than I do.
1: Um, yeah, you know, in, in the early period, uh, I'd, I'd spent uh, two years as Minister of Trade and Industry, and he was the go-to guy on competition policy. Early in '94, uh, we appointed him to the Competition Commission. We needed those insights, uh, and so it was part of, part of the formation of government. And uh, um, I, I think it was a, a remarkable contribution. But, 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 but back to your relationship with your dad, I'm going to suggest that those terrible days in early August because you'd, you'd buried your mother's ashes and then this brutal murder of your father had such a big impact on you that, amongst other things, I have a sense that it also uh, created quite a tangent in your writing and sent you off to write about rugby. Do you want to talk about that?
2: That's a really interesting observation, yeah, because I'd never been interested in rugby before. Um, and then when, in fact, it was Jonathan Ball um, who set me off on the, initially on the path of, write, of writing rugby. Because I'd done another book for them. and. Uh, he said one day, just after the 2007 Rugby um, um, World Cup win, he said, don't you want to go and do a book on, on the Springboks, on this team? And then my father was so thrilled about this, it gave him a sort of a new leaf of, life because, leaf of life, because my mother was then very ill with, um, well, she was just really sort of almost gone with Alzheimer's. So he was in quite a desperate stage of his life. So this was really very exciting for him, and he took great delight in sort of educating me in rugby and followed everything very, very avidly. Um, yeah, so that was definitely a part of it. But I also think what I got from my dad, when I started this quest to interview um, Cecil Thomas, was his doggedness, you know, with the who owns whom, he, he just ignored, you know, he, was, he got into quite a lot of trouble with that book because he upset the corporate so much, as, as says and um, yeah, just a kind of obsessiveness that I also feel that I inherited from him. I was always close to my father.
1: I want to come back to the brutality of the murder in a moment, but the <laughs> trial, which must have been exceedingly exacting, you've, you've dealt with it, you sat through there every single day, you made notes, Uh, And I can confirm from the book that you've uh, gone through the trial records a number of times. It's harrowing, it's cruel, it's brutal. But the judge, Judge Nathan Erasmus, talks about your father. Uh, he, He addresses Cecil Thomas, the accused then, and he asks him, do you know what you've done? You've murdered a social activist, and that was, that was quite quite a tribute from the judge in that matter. I mean, why it didn't why, 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 why the sentence was, what it was, I don't understand, but there was all of that, and so there were certain contradictions that arose, because he talks about that, he recognizes the brutality, and then he talks about. Cecil Thomas, the human material, uh, and what happens to him going forward. Do you want to reflect on that?
2: Well, one of the reasons, but the the, the trial was pretty horrendous because you you sit there in a sort of stuffy room and sort of a couple of meters away from this man who who did this incredibly brutal thing to my father. And you also hear in forensic detail all the absolutely horrific things that were done. It was incredibly brutal murder. Basically, he was tortured for an hour. Uh, and then his throat was slit so, um, so it, well, it was horrendous and for the first time also we discovered that it was a gang thing and I had no idea about that so you know, these, one of the witnesses came and said he was from the 28th, and he was a soldier in the 28s and his job was dealing drugs it was a whole different level of, kind of just opened a whole new horrific scary world um, but then one thing was puzzling and what the judge mentioned but you know, I also found very strange was there were a whole lot of women every day also in that in that courtroom there to support him. He was a man who was loved, who had a very strong, loving family, um, and he was educated. He had tertiary education. He, you know, he'd, he'd, he was a welder and a boilermaker. He was played rugby, and uh, you know, he was a he had children. He wasn't the usual profile of a murderer, who's usually sort of have, comes from a terribly dysfunctional background um, and is very, very damaged early on. So, and he had no prior convictions. So the whole thing—I just, I just, for me, there were no answers actually in that trial. I just found the whole thing very, very surprising. Like the whole thing had been sort of made up in some ways.
1: We'll come back to some of the questions that arose there, but your dogged determination, which you say you got from your father. I mean, I find it fascinating that you were so intrigued with the murderer. You went to the genealogical institute at the University of Stellenbosch to find out about his family and how he came to be in Fraserburg, and the links from there to this place called Saron where he lived. Um, your, your boldness in meeting his niece who was uh, a witness for the defense in the matter, um, all of that must have taken a hell of a lot out of you because you you by then knew exactly who this person was. you understood his brutality, so do you want to talk about about that that quest that that uh, persistence that uh, uh, determination to get to the root of the problem
2: well, it was precipitated mean, after the trial yet yeah, it was just. When something like that happens, that sort of murder, that brutal murder to someone close to you, it's like, is completely devastating. It sort of shakes your life to its very foundations. Um, so from 2008 to the murder, 2010 for the trial, you know, I was just taking lots of drugs and was just getting through life, just somehow enduring, not sort of really living. And then after the trial, I just thought, I've got to get on with my life now. I've got to sort of put all this behind me. I've got to move on. Um, and I did. And then um, in 2017, I was hit by a car. I was knocked down and sort of quite badly injured. And this gave me another whole jolt to kind of push me right back into that um, post-traumatic stress disorder, I think. You know, I was so traumatized by this. And I thought, next time I'm going to die, it's going to be the end, you know, because in this country, look how many car accidents there are, look how many 75 murders a day, You know, it could be me next. You know, obviously, it was very exaggerated sort of anxiety, but nevertheless, it was there. Um, and I stopped taking the drugs by then, so I was no longer my emotions were no longer so dampened, and I just became absolutely furious with this drug you knocked me down and also I just thought if i don 't track down Cecil Thomas now and find out what happened and put that to rest in my mind, um, you know I may not have another chance and in that sort of heightened state of adrenaline and almost like crazy obsessiveness, I managed to do these things, which were extremely difficult. But, yeah, I was in that state of just obsessiveness.
1: Liz, there's an interesting contradiction that plays itself out. On the one hand, he's brutal, and Judge Erasmus describes him as perhaps the most untruthful witness he's ever encountered. He's lied so many times, he's changed his story so many times. There's extreme doubt about whether he could have done this thing alone. So that plays out. You're determined to see him, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But you kind of give him a un- humanity uh, in parts of the book. Um, you say that, 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 that Alan described him as looking like Kevin Spacey. Uh, I thought it was, it was humanizing of somebody who was a complete brute. Do you want to tease that out a bit?
2: Um, Well, I mean, sort of, you know, either you say when something terrible like this happens or something does something so terrible to you, you sort of either, this this person is evil, kind of chop him off, you know, put him in jail, and that's the end of it. But if you look in a country like ours, where, you know, there's so much murder, this crime is generally so incredibly violent, you know, it has to be more and deeper than that. So... Maybe in some ways I looked at him as a symptom also of, of something else. And I mean, some people have accused me of being too sympathetic, but I also think that all I wanted to do was contextualize him. And also I think he'd, in my imagination, become something terrifying out there, the sort of terrifying thing that could happen to me or anyone else I love quite soon. So just to reduce him to a human being within a context also made me feel better.
1: You, you set about to find him and one of the people who clearly played a big role because you went to different prisons. You went to uh, Bruntfle at Worcester. you Eventually, you got to this Furberg prison in, in on, uh in the, in the Swartland. But one of the people who seemed to play the big role is this former warder um, Chris?
2: Malchas.
1: Um, and then eventually you confront uh, the murderer, uh, the convicted murderer. Uh, you confront him in prison. Do you want to just walk through some of that?
2: Okay, so yeah, as Trevor said, I just, I heard his niece told me he was in Fuhrberg. So I just phoned up the governor and said, can I come and see him? I'm very naive. Um, and uh, he said, well, come and see me. And then he, he put me on to a guy called Pastor Zimri, who was in charge of, of um, what they call the victim-offender dialogue, which was a process he said I had to follow. So I said, fine, you know, I'm quite happy to do that. And Pastor Zimri was so delighted to meet me. He said, oh, we try to do this victim-offender thing all the time, and then people, you know, we have to beg the, the, the victim, the victim's family to come. They never want to come. So, you were like a blessing, you know, you sent for our God, you know, it's very, very effusive. Um, and he would be in touch with me very soon. And I never heard from him again. That was it. And I tried to phone him and email him, and he just was not available. So, in desperation, um, through various contacts, I found this guy called Chris Malchas, who was a warder at Pulsmore for 40 years and just retired and was now um, a consultant. And uh, he was amazing. He still had good contacts in the prison he understood gangsterism he understood jails and then so i'm um, employed him i mean i didn't have to pay him very much but he then led me through the process and he made the contacts and he made it happen
1: there's of course something that will play out in the next 12 months and that is that um, this man who you i mean there's this there's this this horrifying encounter that you you refer to where you say to him, you stabbed my father 25 times. And he says, no, it was 24. <laughs> he's, he's due for parole next year. And I think it, in the context of restorative justice, it, it places an onus on your family to engage with this matter. So I just want to take something from, from the book. It's uh, on page 249. In my encounter with Cecil Thomas, if, if my encounter with Cecil Thomas were to have any chance of success, a system would have to be in place. Efficient ethical governance would have been required. He would have to be offered a credible alternative life away from the gang and treatment for his drug addiction. And when he leaves prison, what will we be waiting? For a convicted murder, even a repentant one. That's, that's going to be how this book lives on in the lives of everybody concerned over the next period. But there isn't a system that takes account of this. So.
2: Well, I mean, that in a way, yeah, is the kind of nub of it because, I mean, our whole sort of post-apartheid society is predicated on the idea of forgiveness and rehabilitation and we're moving forward. and. Um, and the, the prison's policy is supposed to embrace this idea of restorative justice because it's the only way of, you know, of, of reincorporating prisoners back into their lives when they're released. Um, but as you know, my experience was that it just does not—that does not exist. It was—it's just a, you know, it's just—it's just purely, um, you know, policy, and that's it. That's where it ends. But because, yeah, because with with um, Cecil Thomas. He was deeply embedded in the 28 gangs. So I think he got enmeshed in with them before he went. The, the murder was because he owed them money for drugs and they insisted on some sort of payback. And he had heard about, a friend of his had been working from Sauron, had been working in my father's house in Tilbach and saw that there was a, a safe there and he had some money and he had a couple of guns. And so I think what happened was that Cecil Thomas told, he's told the gangsters, OK, you can go and this is, you'll find money here, gold and silver, which is the gang thing. And uh, so, and I think that was why, because I could never understand why they had to murder him. Why did they, why did they just take his things? You know, why did they have to kill him? And I think that was part of a ritualistic gang murder. Anyway, by the time I came to see him, he was deeply entrenched. He was a vafy in the silver line of the 28th which is quite a lowly position, so he was a basically a skivvy to um, some general in the, in the, in the prison hierarchy. Um, and, you know, he had to, he had to get provide sex and wash his clothes and generally run after him. Um, and... Uh, but... So I think he completely given himself over to the gangs. It's now a sort of cult that he has joined, and he's kind of oblivious to any other kind of life. So, you know, I, I don't know how much you guys know about the gangs. I mean, you're probably a well-read audience, and you do know something. But basically, it's um, yeah, they have their own language, the sabella. They have their own um, belief system. They have their own uh, yeah, the hierarchy, which is, is was started in the in the gangs um, in the in the mines in the, at the beginning of the last century. And, in fact, one thing I also discovered in my book was that Nungalosa, who's the founder of the Number Gangs, worked on the same mine as my great-grandfather, who came from Scotland at the East Rand Proprietary Mines, and uh, Nungalosa was a prisoner, and he started his Ninevehite gangs in the Cinderella prison, which was uh, ERPM's private prison, where they got convict labor to work for virtually nothing. And my great-grandfather worked at the same time, Alexander. Anyway, so this goes back these gangs to that very, very brutal period of our country's history. So yeah, there he is, old uh, Cecil Thomas, you know reciting the gang law to us, and um, including his uniform, which is entirely imaginary. Um, so in this meeting, which was quite a sort of um, tense, there was a three-hour confrontation with me and Chris and Alan, my husband, um, and uh, Cecil Thomas, and he was flanked by a social worker and and the pastor, another pastor. And uh, he was getting quite harried because we were kind of firing questions at him. And then at one point, Chris said to him, what's your uniform? And he sort of went into this very sort of trance-like state of kind of peace. And uh, he said, okay, it's white tackies, white socks, white shorts, a buckle, a belt with a silver buckle with a rose on it to show that I'm pretty. And then a white beret with also a rose to show that I'm I'm always pretty. And then there are two buttons um, in my shirt and one is open to show that I'm always available for sex to my, my, my general. And the other is closed to show that I'm disciplined. It was the most eerie thing.
1: It's it's unbelievably scary and, and, and it's quite important, I'm saying, Liz has now recounted some of these issues. I'm sure many people sitting here would have read The Number by Johnny Steinberg and a range of other books and have some sense of these prison gangs. But I think that Liz is able to reveal a level of detail that surely makes it scary to try and understand what happens with and beyond parole because this is a reflection on the society. and It's fundamentally important that, that we continually engage with some of the experiences that people have been through and what this means for society. Is, I mean, in spite of what, what, what Judge Rasmus said, is it possible that he could be easily rehabilitated? Has to be a fundamental question, but that's what drove you in the beginning. Um, and I think I think it's it you know one must leave that um, to the reader to examine, explore, and and, and 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 try and engage with. This is a book launch, and I I think that one of the themes um, uh, that's 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 quite appropriate uh, for a book launch uh, is 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 actually in the epilogue. It's a love affair that starts when eyes meet at a book launch. And uh, it's Liz and Alan and they were married and they just snuck in before the lockdown um, in March of of 2020.
2: And Trevor was there and Maria was there and Coco and Georgie were there.
1: (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, so while hanging out just be reminded of that theme that also emerges from this rather difficult book. I want to stop there.
2: Let's hand over to questions. Okay.
1: I, I haven't read the book yet, so I'll look forward to reading it um, after this. But I'm, I'm just slightly confused. Did you, do you feel, after going down this journey, that you've actually found closure and answers to your questions? Or are there still a lot of questions that you want answers
0: to? Um, and where would you go next after this, um, after this journey?
2: Um, okay, well, thank you. That's, that's a, a very good question. I mean, I think it was a very, very difficult journey, and it looked, took me four years to, you know, to do the research and to write it. But I did find closure. Uh, well, closure, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, I'm glad I did it. I feel a lot better about the whole thing. I owed it to my father to find out what happened, to find out what the real reason was, and just to illuminate the whole thing, not just let it lie. So that was one thing I sort of feel it's partly kind of duty done to my father. And then also for myself, you know, um, I now understand it. It's kind of it, it made it the whole thing manageable for me, whereas before it was just this terrifying thing out there. And now I understand much more of what happened and who he is. It's definitely been, it's definitely been good for me. And what next? I don't know. I think I'm going to write something very frivolous. <laughs>
0: I hope I remember correctly. When, the, uh, when you started the talk, you referred to uh, 80% of the JSE being owned, I think, by five companies. I would be very keen and interested to know what the, what the current situation is. And I think it, it, it sort of, um, it's a theme that also seemed to come forward in the book, in the sense that you referred to, um, that it, you're now looking at who owns Cecil Thomas. And I was also curious to know whether he showed any
1: remorse. I don't think you have anything close to the concentrations that you had then. I mean, pause for a moment and think about um, Anglo-American who, because they wanted mining rights, needed surface rights, and so they entered into massive agriculture. And because they were accumulating all this wealth in a closed economy, then went into all manner of other uh, 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 industries. They they built cars. They sold cars. They I mean it was just on and on. Uh, or you can look at South African breweries that brewed and, and and had shoe factories and had OK bazaars and you know. But that was the pattern of the economy then. Um, and 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 what competition law has done has actually been to open it. And I think the introduction of BE has also compelled the sell off of, 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 of certain things. In some respects, I think it, it compelled some of these former conglomerates to concentrate on what they could do well and to let other things go. And I think that's created other opportunities in the economy. So I think, uh, I, I don't know, uh, uh, your brother still publishes something, and I don't quite know what the what the percentages are but they are radically different from what you had in the 80s through to about the mid-90s but I'm saying that it was an issue that was fiercely resisted. Uh, There was one chap when I was in trade and industry there was one guy uh, who I shan't name here who we were in a conference debating this issue and he said um, uh, uh, fortunately ministers have limited shelf life. Uh, I think it was wrong on that one, too, in my case, but I wasn't quite uh, uh, the weekend special, but there you go.
2: Hi, Anadeh. Yeah, so the, the second part of the question, yeah, yeah, I mean, what I also found was terrifying, the extent to which um, so, well, the Western Cape is what I was looking at. I mean, how, how powerful the gangs are. Yeah, that is another form of monopoly, the way they they extort money from businesses and Restaurants and even individuals in the townships, um, and how powerful they are. They, sometimes, you know, they're often sort of very, very rich men who just then manipulate these vast armies of soldiers who then go and do all the dirty work. Um, you yeah, I think it's a shadow world. To, it's a sh- shadow world to Western Cape and the beautiful mountains and seas and glittering tourists you know, attractions. Yeah, Underneath there's this sort of, you know, really kind of evil, dark world um, that is uh, it's very, very powerful actually.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, again, thanks for being here. Um, I repeat, it's a fascinating read uh, and Liz has this gift to weave a number of threads together and it's a very, very compelling story. But it's the unanswered questions that I think makes makes the book as compelling uh, as it is as well so uh, i invite you acquire it and read it thanks thanks for joining us for this week's
0: episode of pagecast we have an incredible lineup of author interviews so head over to our facebook and instagram and follow jonathan ball publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes thanks for your interest in the story behind the story happy reading from everyone at pagecast